Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Featuring classic hits such as We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, and of course the title track, Bohemian Rhapsody. Fox's anticipated film about the iconic Freddie Mercury and British rock band Queen has finally arrived. The new motion picture focuses on the life of Mercury, featuring a captivating performance by Rami Malek, starting with the band's formation in 1970 and tracing its path through their 1985 Live Aid set at Wembley Stadium in London, which today is considered one of the greatest performances in rock history. To tell this story, the filmmakers relied upon editor John Ottman. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen podcast. I'm Carolyn Jardina, and in today's episode, I talk with John Ottman, who shares a behind-the-scenes look at the making of Bohemian Rhapsody. John is both an award-winning editor and film composer. In fact, he has the distinction of having handled both roles on numerous films, including The Usual Suspects, for which he earned a BAFTA for editing, Valkyrie, and various X-Men movies, including X-Men 2 and Days of Future Past. John, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. As with various films, you were initially brought on to Bohemian Rhapsody as both editor and composer, but you excused yourself from taking the composer credit while you were in production. Could you explain that? Well, you know, when I read the script, I even said, I'm not sure this film should have score. But, you know, when you read a script, you know, especially for a biopic, you know, the assumption is that no matter how the script reads, there's going to end up being areas where you're going to have to support the film dramatically with score. And I accepted that that was most likely a possibility, but I just had a sense that it wouldn't be right for this movie. But nevertheless, I always have a vested interest in in wanting to write a score for, for film editing because as far back as The Usual Suspects, you know, the editing was sort of a, my consolation prize for being able to write the score to the movie because Brian, starting way back then, he would admit this. So it was a blackmail situation where you're not going to be the composer unless you edit the film. So we started making the film, and, and I would say halfway through it was dawning on me that this is just not going to be right to put in film music because I really wanted to keep the film as the filmmaker without the vested interest of being the composer I had to sort of say look this isn't right Um, we want to keep this film raw and real even though it's a, a fun flamboyant movie you want it to feel like it's not going to lapse into the typical Hollywood thing with doing film music when you don't have to I mean I'm always a big believer in 
not scoring a scene if you don't have to score it. So in the areas where I would have scored, I used opera music like in the background that he would be listening to, which supported a couple of the scenes between him and Mary. And it makes sense because he um, was an avid opera listener. So it was, again, it adds more reality to the film than, than film music would have. So you used Queen's actual music in the concert footage as well as other parts of the film. Could you describe that approach? Obviously, the concert scenes were going to be Queen, but there was an effort to use the Queen music in other places if I could. And one of the most emotional areas of doing that was um, Who Wants to Live Forever from the film Highlander that they scored. And it's when Freddie is, is mulling about in his house, thinking about going to the doctor to ultimately get his diagnosis. And so I used tracks from that piece of music to carry us through his him making that decision to go to the doctor and then getting the diagnosis and then meeting the kid in the hall, not to uh, ruin the film for people who haven't seen it. But in all this is a very emotional sequence. And so it starts out literally with the song, literally. And then I went into tracks of the song to sort of score the sequence where he talks to the doctor, taking the vocal tracks out and using the orchestra of that song. It's a really emotional song. It was actually interesting because it, it was a, originally a dream sequence that we prevised, which is uh, doing a animated version of what it's going to look like in the film. But we ended up bringing it back down to reality and just having it be him in the house listening to a news report about AIDS. So how were the tracks mixed so that the original concert material fit into the Well, film. we were really lucky that, um, you know, Queen kept all of the original tracks safe in a vault somewhere, I guess. And so they supplied all of those tracks to, no matter what song it was, to the, to us. And so the, the music editor with whom I worked on the film would help me, you know, if I needed a, a dialogue stem. A, a track is called a stem. And so if I needed a dialogue stem or if I need a, a stem of Roger's drumming or a stem of this so I could have more separation in the Avid when I was editing the scene, I could, I could favor those moments. Or I could cut out the dialogue track completely, like in Who Wants to Live Forever, and just use this, the orchestra stem. And one of the highlights of the film is the Live Aid concert at Wembley Stadium. Tell us about putting... Because <laughs> that was a big gamble, like, well, this is the way we're ending the film. Hope you like it. But um, fortunately, it, it carries with it such an emotional resonance from Freddie himself that it, it carries the entire sequence in his performance and the music and, and the antics and so forth. And I would say the crowd participation is a major thing in the film. Um, Queen's whole thing was involving the crowd. We Will Rock You is the ultimate example of that. And there's a scene where Brian May tells Freddie, you know, this is we need to involve the audience more. And so Live Aid becomes the, the culmination in that. And it really adds so much emotion to it when you see the participation of the crowd. If it literally just showed the band performing, it would not nearly have had the emotional resonance. So what was shot? What was visual effects? And how did you bring all the elements together? Well, there was probably... 100 people out there, extras, which is nothing. That's like a drop in the bucket in terms of the, the space right. out there. But they were used as just a reference for if the camera w was shot off the stage, you know, as, so that what their actions were, were doing, singing along with the songs. But what they did is they took a number of people, I think it must have been, I can't say, I think it's around 100 people, and scanned 
each person in a 360-degree scan and then had each person do all the, the gyrations, uh, clapping or singing along with whatever song uh, was in the concert. And then those people were, of course, duplicated. So there's no fake people out there. They're all real, but they're all manipulated. And then they could change the clothes on the people and try to spice, you know, to break up, you know, too many red shirts, too many blue shirts and so forth. So it was a big job. And, you know, there, there's, you know for budgetary reasons, you know, I was asked to stay facing the stage as much as I could, you know, but it gets to the point where you have to sell it. And you, and again, it's all about the participation of the crowd. Even though you can hear them, you want to see them once in a while. So, and, and, and also some of Rami's best moments are like from side shots or shots behind him where you see the crowd. And so um, all that was green screen and I had to use that. So every time I would do that, of course, even if it were a sliver of green, if they're shot just off the stage, we'd have to fill that in with crowd, you know, not just crowd, but the structure of the stadium and so forth. Because all that, all it was was a big parking lot outside. You shot it in a parking lot in, parking in London. Lot in London, out somewhere. I don't know where the hell we were. The only reason I know that is because I came down, I was called down to the set to a cameo, and I don't know, I have any idea what this cameo is going to be, and if you watch the film, I'm the first guy in the film after Rami wakes up in his bedroom. I'm, I'm the guy walking to the TV van. I'm the, I'm the TV director. Um, they put this ghastly wig on me, and uh, yeah, that's me. So not only did they have to fill in the crowd, but they fill in the, 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 the boxes, the, the, you know, the, the VIP boxes and, um, and the structure of the stadium. Was that the first time you were in a movie? No, I, I've had little little cameos here and there, you know, and it's usually that kind of situation. I'm so busy and I can't deal with it. So I'm literally called down and they're like, this is what you're going to do. I'm like, OK, fine. You know, so I wasn't even aware I was going to have a cameo in the film until I was asked to come to the set. So and I usually get very irritated. I'm like, it's, I'm going to blow an entire day driving down there, you know, but but it's pretty it's pretty featured. I mean, literally, it's the it's I am walking right into the camera and then and by the camera into the uh, van and you see the princess die and Prince Charles assembly in, in the TV monitor as I walk into the TV van. The live aid performance was so iconic. So when you edited it, to what extent did you want to stay faithful to what everyone saw and to what extent did you want to do something a little different? I, I think the main approach was to do something, to not do the same thing because we've all seen that, you know. So if there was a way to be a fly in the wall or be on a stage in a different different angle or be closer to Freddie that you couldn't do in the original concert, then that was the that was the idea. And obviously, I always say this was the, the Death Star sequence of this film because, you know, it's like the whole movie boils down to where you, everyone knows where it's going, you know, and it's like, what about Live Aid? Live Aid? Did you hear about Live Aid? What's going on? You know, so the, the pressure of making this thing work was huge because... The entire goal is to end with live aid. It's like, what if it's a dud? What if it doesn't work? We are screwed. And so that was a constant stress for me. You know, obviously, live aid was one of the first things we shot. So it's something I worked on here and there whenever I could throughout the whole entire year of, of being on the film. Did you have a lot of takes to work with? Yeah, there was a good amount. There was a good amount of takes on some songs, and almost no takes on a couple songs because they weren't supposed to be in the film, and they never actually they're not in the film. Like for instance, "Crazy Little Thing" was 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 cut out, and I literally just did the extended version of that. That's going to be released at some point. Um, I don't know what form it is of standalone or what, but um, all those little bits um, that were cut out of live it are all being put back. But there wasn't much coverage on that song at all. So I'd rely on cutting the audience and using some wide shots and so forth, you know. Now, that was a perfect introduction to my yeah. next question. As I understand it, there was an earlier version that was quite a bit longer. Tell us what, what wasn't used. Okay, well, with every film, of course, they're always quite a bit longer. And, you know, usually the end result is about 
90% the best decision, but there's always about 10% that the, the editor will disagree with. So there are some things I wish we had put had left in the film. And there's a couple moments of live edit I wish we had left in. It would have added like an entire minute or two, God forbid. But they were cut out. So there was there's little moments of songs cut out just for time. And then there was two songs cut out. We, we Were Rocky was cut out and Crazy Little Thing was cut out. So in the extended version, there'll be those two songs put back in their entirety, but also all the other songs that were edited, all that's being put back. And there are amazing moments of Freddie's gyrations that were cut out, which pains me to death when I see the film. But I'm very happy that we're going to re-release the extended version so people can see all those moments. What else was cut that you would like to have kept in? I understand there were some sequences when he was a child. Yes, (laughs) <laughs> Look, it's a great movie, but, you know, I, it's always something that you wish were in there. I, I had wished to put some of those scenes in. When I went and saw I, Tanya in while we were making this film, I, and they showed her as a little girl, you love her the whole movie no matter what she does. And so I was thinking, that's Zanzibar for us, you know. But we don't have that problem, though. You love Freddie no matter what he does in the film. So that was one of the reasons not to put it in and um, just have it be talked about. I have no idea if they're ever going to do an extended release of the movie itself, but it would be nice to put some of those scenes back. Brian May and Roger Taylor were around a lot while the film was being made. What was it like to work with them, and what sort of input did they provide? They were, of course, mainly concerned with how the concerts were being portrayed only because they inevitably needed to be edited down. So I had the dubious task of having to slash their music here and there. But I am a composer, so I I, I did try, I did do it musically, of course, but there wasn't always agreement on what bar I should cut and so forth. So I would cut a scene together and then they would come in and take a look at it and give their notes about, God, I wish that were back. You know, inevitably there was a Brian May guitar solo moment that I'd have to cut out because his guitar moments are amazing, but they're also a lot of fill for a concert. They're just kind of buying time to go back into the chorus or whatever. So those were often cut down a bit. So, um, But he was very good about it. He, I think as the, the process went on, Brian May understood the filmmaking needs to have these things be shorter. But we add a couple bars back here, take a bar back there. And then, and then the other thing that they were, of course, very involved in was the final mix of the movie. So they came to the final dub where we put all the tracks together and do, do an amazing mix. And, um, you know, it's like favor the guitar more here or favor the bass more here, maybe Freddie's too echoey, things like that. And so that added a lot of time to our mix, but it was great that they, we want their blessing. So, you know, in the end, I think everyone was happy. Now, you just got back from London and you attended the premiere at Wembley. What was that experience like? It, well, you know, I hate premieres, um, all these hermits that just cannot stand going out and going into crowded areas. But um, it was amazing. I've, I've never seen such a big spectacle in my life. And even people who go to premieres all the time and said it was the biggest premieres they've ever seen. Um, and we were joking, like, well, this isn't even like a James Bond movie or X-Men film. It's, it's, it was supposed to be this little this little rock band movie, you know, and it's got this premiere that eclipses those premieres. So it was pretty astounding. I mean, it literally was seven or 8,000 people in um, Wembley Stadium, the new one, the the smaller stadium, whatever, that they put next to the original Wembley Stadium, I forget what it's called. And they, they, they constructed this screen, which was, I guess, the biggest screen ever constructed in the UK. And it was extremely clear, astounding image. And the next day they trashed it, you know. And the sound, which I normally dread at these uh, big event premieres, was amazing. They spent a lot of time, and Paul Massey, who was our, our sound mixer on the film, actually supervised it because he was horrified we were going to do this giant venue as well. 
which isn't good for a movie, you know. But it was in 7-1 surround, and it sounded amazing, yeah. So the crowd was obviously going crazy, and even when Brian May walked in to take his seat, the, the, the stomping and clapping for the real Rock You thing pounded the theaters. It was, it was pretty crazy, you know, but it was, it was a great event. Yeah. Now, you have such an interesting background as both a composer and an editor. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. I grew up in San Jose, and I made films as a kid, you know. Uh, make the long story short, I met Brian Singer in USC, I was helping out on a, a, a friend's film there, a, a thesis project, and um, I was doing the, the, the sound boom. I mean, Brian was doing the sound mixing or whatever. He was a PA on the project, and then we met. And then we ended up doing a short diner-esque kind of film together, and I ended up co-directing that with him. And then from there, we, we, we did a, a Sundance movie called Public Access, which is a really low-budget weird movie we did. I was editing the film as I had a, as I was holding on a full-time job, by the way. The composer dropped out in the 11th hour because the music wasn't working and so forth. And we had our backs up against the wall for a deadline for, um, for the Sundance Film Festival. So I told Brian, like, I said, look, you know, I... I write music as a hobby and he goes, yeah, but all you do is all that feel good stuff, you know, for, cause I was doing, I was doing industrial videos for like quick set lock company and Amco parking, you know, all this feel good music. And I said, no, 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 I can do dark and sinister, which this character was in this film. The joke of it then after that film was successful and no one had really done both the composing and the editing on a, on a film like that before I ended up being pigeonholed in my composing career as being the dark guy. So I was doing all these, you know, horror films and sinister fucked up movies and where, you know, I was a slowery composer inside wanting to, wanting to do that. But, um, and, and, and later in my career, I got to do that. I got to do things like Astro Boy and, you know, animated, it was an animated feature, but it was like great to be able to write a, a score like that full of you know, emotion. And, and, and I've had um, other opportunities to do that as a composer. So and I got to branch out and do, Things like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, some you know, which is uh, I found a new niche for myself, the sort of like wry sense of humor I have with music. So, but that's how it all started. Really, was when I had to write both the score and the and, the, and do the editing on that on that Sundance film. So then we put the Suspects film together. I was like, I love this writing film music stuff, you know. And it's like, well, you're not going to do that unless you edit the film. So, you obviously have done a lot of movies with Brian Singer. So when he was replaced on Bohemian Rhapsody, how did that impact your work? You know, it really didn't in a strange way because throughout my career with Brian, he just sort of lets me do my thing. He's not, he doesn't really like to screw with my head because he wants to be surprised by what I'm going to do. So he's afraid of messing up an idea I might have. So he likes to go away on a vacation and then come back and see what I did. So this was kind of like the same thing, but he never came back, you know. But um, and Dexter was only on for a very short time. So I, I basically edited the film by myself with my two partners, Graham King, the, the producer, and his producing partner, Dennis O'Sullivan, and we bonded. And we just had the same sensibilities, and it was like an amazing partnership we had. So it, it went actually very smoothly for me. You know, I, I usually am on the set all the time, and on this film, I just was in the editing room, so I just was sort of shielded from all of the stuff that was going on. <laughs> what was your favorite scene to cut? Sometimes your favorite scenes to cut are the most difficult scenes to cut, and, and you know because they're rewarding. And the scene where they're putting again together Bohemian Rhapsody in the studio in this countryside barn—it's a great scene. It's a great scene, and the moment I put together, I was pissed because I'm like, okay, I know they're going to blow this apart. I know they're going to cut it down. They're going to screw with it. And I'm so angry, so I, I cut in anger, <laughs> you know. But it was never touched. Not a frame changed from when I had constructed that scene. Hiya. Jesus, 
How many more Galileos do you want? One more, one more. One more. Again. Go on, roll the track. Who even is Galileo? Are we done? That's it. The challenge on that scene was that I would say it was about 50% improvised. So Rami and, and the, the other guys playing the band members just went off the script. And so Rami would say something that's really cool, but there was no, never necessarily an answer to it. But I would take like a Brian moment from later in the scene and create an answer. And so I basically had to take all the improvised lines and script them out in the editing room and kind of pull off this sort of banter and that's what makes the scene more real and fun is because it really is banter but it had to be sort of designed in a way in the editing room that's one of my proudest moments in the film and so happy it survived <laughs> and then talk a little bit about establishing the relationship between freddie and mary establishing that relationship was not too easy because you know the audience wants to get on with the band's rise, yet we have to tell this story between them, which is which is uh, one of the one of the cornerstones of, of the film. How do you have someone meet someone, have a courtship, move in together, be an item, so that we can move on with the story? You know, so I would say that was the biggest challenge was 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 sort of telling that story off screen and having a lot of time go by. Otherwise, the first act would have been another thirty minutes. You know. Well, it was such an important relationship to establish. She really is such a big part of his life throughout his life. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, I think a lot of people don't know that story. I mean, I think diehards may know that story, but I think most people don't know that, that, that even though he was gay, the love of his life happened to be a woman. And that, I think, causes a lot of cognitive dissonance in, you know, some people uh, having to to understand that concept when they see the movie. And I mean, everyone loves the film, but I mean, talk people who are, haven't seen the film and are, are commenting on that already because it's confusing for people, just as it was confusing for Freddie. You know, Freddie was in love with her because she was a soulmate, but he couldn't give her everything. And there was a line in the film where she says, what do you want from me? And he says, almost everything. That's the way of telling her, I wish I could give you more, but I can't. And so that's what the story was. So, you know, um, sorry, <laughs> that, that's the story of the movie. And then, of course, he does find love in, in Jim Hutton, uh, a guy he meets later at this party. What do you hope people will take away from the film? I hope the big takeaway is just a celebration of Freddie Mercury. You know, I mean, a biopic which can only be so long, can only service so much of a person's life. And I think the, the goal of the film was to allow as many people as possible to experience the movie. And so we had to make it for, we wanted to make it for people who could bring their kids as well, or at least bring their teenagers. And yet we also had to service the dark side of Freddy without having it be rated R. So I think it was quite a challenge to make everyone happy, and you're never going to make everybody happy. But I think by narrowing the confines of the movie, enough younger people couldn't see it. So um, that was the challenge, and I think I think we basically succeeded by making a film that's basically a romp. It's fun. It does delve into Freddy's demons, and in the end, it's a man who who, like we've seen many times in, in entertainment or music, you know, who gets too full of himself and alienates everyone else and then and then comes back with his tail between his legs and apologizes and, and, and then um, comes back together and, and is a humbled individual. And and then given the backdrop of what we know happened to Freddie, it has even more re emotional resonance when he basically performs his swan song in a way, um, even though he died years later. Nevertheless, 
this was the big moment, and this is the, the quintessential moment of Freddy bonding with his, his audience, you know. He's so beloved by especially those who are, are Queen fans that I think that those fans would want others to discover him who don't know them as well as they do. So I think if you're a Queen fan or someone who, who loves Freddie Mercury and there is, a, there is a love for this guy, you want other people to feel what you're feeling. So again, the more people that you could bring into that understanding of him, the better. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Anytime. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.